I think I fucked up. I think I got us into a situation where both of us can get killed. Damn. I don't know why I didn't just go to the police right away. You know why. You already said. What did I say? Nobody believe us. We'd still get in trouble. We'd still have our lives ruined. Know what else? What? That guy was hurting me. If you hadn't come out, he would have hurt me a lot worse. And probably nothing would have happened to him because everybody did see me dancing with him all night. They would have made out like I'd asked for it. My life would have been ruined a whole lot worse than it is now. At least I'm having some fun. And I'm not sorry that son of a bitch is dead. I'm just sorry it was you that did it, not me. Welcome to Your Pick, a film podcast. I'm Tatum. And I'm Geneva. We are two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us, to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. are back hi tatum how are you i'm very excited for this episode so good. <laughs> i'm really excited to talk about it but i'm also kind of nervous because mm-hmm. i feel like you liked this movie but i don't know how much you liked it so mm-hmm. I'm like is geneva gonna be lukewarm on this because i'm nervous but anyway before we get into that please share with us what you've been watching Yes, definitely. Um, I've watched I've watched quite a few things actually since we last recorded. Um, trying to remember what I mentioned last time. Did I? I didn't mention the Iron Claw on no our record. Right? Uh, okay, I don't think so. I know I you and I talked about it. Okay, <laughs> but I don't remember if we were recording or not okay. when we talked about it. <laughs> I do remember last time we recorded, I was sort of halfway through my Hunger Games rewatch. Oh, okay. so I'll just report that I watched the last two movies, Mockingjay Part One and Part Two, which I still maintain are good <laughs> movies. I stick up for them. I think Part Two is a bit weaker than Part One. I actually really like Part One, um, but I like them overall. I love the Hunger Games franchise. I maintain that it's good. Anyway, all that being said. Um, I will report one older movie that I watched this week. My roommate showed me the film Dr. Zhivago from 1965, which was a huge hit at the time. It's a mm-hmm. David Lean epic that is it's like a top 10 grosser of all time when adjusted for inflation. I think it still might be, although maybe one of the avatars bumped it out or something. I don't know. But um. Dr. Zhivago is amazing. If anyone hasn't seen it, one of the reasons I'd never seen it is because I knew it was, you know, long and I was afraid it would be kind of stuffy and boring, but I did not find it to be either of those things. It is fascinating. The acting is incredible. It is such an interesting period of time because it is about the a um a Russian doctor who is basically trying to navigate the incredible changes that happen during the Bolshevik, the the Russian Revolution of 1917, and then the um, the ensuing civil war between the whites and the reds and the eventual Bolshevik victory. So just an incredibly interesting, tumultuous period of Russian history that I kind of knew a little bit about, but really not all that much. And um, yeah, I highly recommend it if you're, um, if you 
are interested in seeing films of this era, if you're interested in that era of Russian history, if you just like a really well-told um, kind of epic drama about these two people who flit in and out of each other's lives but are kind of entangled in this really powerful way, highly, highly recommend. Dr. Zhivago. Um, okay, so I watched quite a few new releases apart from that this week. Um, so I'll try to go through them pretty quickly. Um, first, The Iron Claw. Um, the rumors are true. Zac Efron is amazing. Um, the acting Indeed. in that film is just really, really good down the line. It is, I mean, I can't really say much more than what everyone else has been saying. It's a very powerful story. It is also very sad. <laughs> so go in prepared for that. But it's a very, very well done movie, I think. And I wish it was getting more awards attention than it currently is. There's just so many movies this year. There's so many good movies. I feel like any other year it would have it would mm -hmm. get like this movie in the color purple, I feel like any other year would get a lot yeah. of awards recognition, but this year it's just Yeah. It's, a lot of those late it's in just the so year overpopulated. Movies. Yeah. Yeah. It's unfortunate. But it's a lovely problem to have though. It is, it, yeah. For me as a moviegoer. <laughs> Especially when you look back at like where we were with Oscar nominations and like I don't know. I feel, I remember like 2010, 2011 being like real mm. dry periods where you just look at the list and you're like, ugh. Yeah. I'll know about any of these. And then this yep. year it's an, a complete abundance of riches. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's a good problem to have. It gives uh, me hope. A few years ago I was like, cinema's dead. And now I'm like, <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> um, I saw the film Maestro, the Bradley Cooper biopic of Leonard Bernstein. I am very mixed on this film, Ooh, I will okay. say, because, I mean, this is a film that's had such a strange sort of reception because I feel like when it came out at film festivals, it had all this really rapturous, like, um, you know, all these critics were praising it and then there was sort of a backlash and people were saying it's actually really bad. I think this movie is definitely not what I expected. It is definitely more interesting and idiosyncratic. It is not a straight... Um, sort of by the numbers biopic which is what i was worried about it is much more artsy it jumps around it's black and white and then it's color scenes will start and cut off um the way that it's told is definitely not you know so many of these musical biopics it you feel like you're just basically reading a wikipedia plot summary of this person's life that is not what maestro is that being said i don't really think that it works very well. Um, I like the ambition behind it, but I just don't know if this was the specifically this specific story is. I don't want to say it's not interesting enough to be told in this way because I do think it is a really interesting story. So it's basically it focuses on the relationship between Leonard Bernstein, who was a gay man who was married to a woman. And his wife, who was an actress in her own right, but had to and and continued to have her career after she was married, but did, you know, in some ways sort of feel like she had to, you know, tamp down parts of herself in order to be the supportive wife to the great composer. And so there's a lot of really interesting stuff about it. I think the some of the specific choices that they make when adapting the story in this way, I don't think work for this story. I don't think I can't really get more specific than that just to say it's definitely worth watching there are some really excellent performances and there's some really interesting ideas i think bradley cooper is an extremely talented not only actor but also director and i'm very interested to see what else he does 
I just don't think this movie completely works. But I have I have not seen Maestro. I have zero interest in seeing it to be honest, but um I, I based off of what I've heard about it, I just go see wa- watch Fosse Verdon instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I which I I definitely need to see Fosse Verdon, but um yeah, anyway, so that was Maestro. Um next I watched Asteroid City and I, Which I have think kind of I talked about on the last on our last recording, I think. I think you might have. Yeah, yeah. I loved Asteroid City. I I've had kind of a an up and down relationship with Wes Anderson. I sort of started with his newer films and was kind of turned off by how you know, I mean, he is a very stylistic filmmaker. You kind of vibe with him or you don't. And I wasn't ready to vibe with him at that moment. But I went back and watched some of his earlier things, really loved them. And now I want to revisit some of his newer stuff because I really, really vibed with Asteroid City. I thought it it looks gorgeous. and But it, it's such an impressive job of balancing tones that he is doing in this film because it is sort of simultaneously very funny and light but there are also these very moments dark. It can also that are be so very dark, dark and yeah. so quietly devastating, but in this really, really, you know, delicate way. Like, so much of this film is really delicate. That's the only way I can find to describe it. So I highly recommend Asteroid City. If you have even the slightest interest in Wes Anderson or, or a film like this, definitely recommend. Geneva, I know I talked about this several episodes back. But I don't know if I, I didn't impress it, impress it upon you as much because I know you have an up and down relationship with Wes Anderson, but especially after hearing how much you enjoyed Asteroid City, please watch his short film, the the Henry Sugar one. Mm. I think you will love it. I think it is his most, um, I don't know the, the correct adjective for this, but it is the most innovative in terms of his production design and how you transition from one thing to the next. It also has an incredible, arguably one of his best performances from Dev Patel. Um, And it's only like 45 minutes. I really, really want you to watch it because I think I think you'll love it. It's very, very good. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I was thinking I I need to check out some of those short films. I couldn't remember which was the one that you had specifically recommended. But yeah, I think it was Henry Sugar. So, Mm -hmm. okay. Is that the one that has Benedict Cumberbatch as well, or is that one of the others? No, he's in he's in that one as well as the the other one where he's like, okay. "There's a there's a thing on my stomach that's gonna bite me," and he just okay. lays there. Oh, that's right. Still. Yeah. He's like, "Someone that. save me! Someone, someone help me! I can't move." Um, okay, so the next thing that I saw, two more things. Um, I saw the film American Fiction starring Jeffrey Wright, which I really, really liked. I was very excited for this. I I really love Jeffrey Wright as an actor. I've not seen enough of his work. Um, but every time I see something with him in, I'm just like, this guy is so talented. I'm, you know, he's usually also in supporting in roles. City. And so it's, yeah, he's fantastic in Asteroid City. He has a great speech that he gives, which is, you know, he's one of those actors where you could just sit and watch him like list off the phone book you know his voice is beautiful gorgeous i love his voice american fiction is a it's a really interesting film i do feel like it's sort of two films at once that at times don't entirely go together but i think on the whole it's it's pretty successful it is simultaneously a sort of light but sharp satirical look at the modern publishing and just sort of wider 
um, cultural industry that um, the the way that African-American stories are posed within the American sort of publishing and film industry and the which stories are told and the ways that they're told in a way that, you know, there's a lot of debate about, is this a representation of truth or is this giving basically white people what they think they want to know in order to assuage their guilt. Like, it's a really interesting conversation to have. But then at the same time, this movie is also a um, very moving drama about a um, a Black family who's had a lot of pain and, and conflict in their past and kind of moving forward in the wake of a tragedy and coming to a greater understanding of each other. The lead character, the Jeffrey Wright character, um, Thelonious Monk, <laughs> uh, Harlan, I think is his last name. Uh, I can't remember now, but um, he's a he's a sort of this academic who's very who's a writer, but he's very closed off from other people and from his family. And after a tragedy, he needs to come uh, move to back into his childhood home and start taking care of his mother, who has Alzheimer's. And he's sort of coming to a greater understanding of who his father was. His father was this man he kind of idolized, but is now has since passed away and has started real started to realize had these real flaws that he didn't understand when he was a child growing up. Um, his brother has recently come out as gay and is really reckoning with. Um, the environment in which he was growing up and um, sort of trying to figure out his place as a uh, a middle-aged gay man and his relationship to his family now that he's out. Um, yeah, it's a, I highly recommend this movie. It's not perfect, but the acting is really good and it, it covers some really interesting um, topics in some, in some very nuanced ways, I think. So yeah, American fiction. This one, this one's been going on and off my watch list for a while because I I feel like it seems interesting, but I also feel like it's a movie where I'll watch it and be like, I get it. You know, mm-hmm. like I, I understand this makes sense. I feel like it seems, and it, I could be wrong, but it seems to me more to be like an educational movie for white people of, as opposed to something that's more universally made for everybody but I could be wrong it just seems to be very Mm. like white people you need to be aware that you're making people of color do this as opposed to I don't know but but I could be very wrong I mean I can I can see that I think I would be very curious if you do end up seeing it which you definitely don't have to but if you do I'd be very curious to hear what you think I think there is an element of that, but there is also an element of it, which is a conversation within Black creators, like the Black creative community, about what is the way that we want to represent ourselves? What are the stories Mm -hmm. we want to tell about ourselves? Like, There's a really, really interesting scene toward the end of the film where Jeffrey Wright's character has a conversation with Issa uh, Issa Rae's character. And her character throughout the whole film has been this kind of representation of everything that he's disgusted with about the way that um, like black writers, the the stories that black writers are choosing to tell about themselves and the way that he feels like they're pandering to sort of white audiences. And so this conversation they have with each other, he kind of lays out all of these concerns. And then but then she has this responsive. Yeah, I understand all of that. But 
also, I'm a person who is, um, you know, understanding the publishing industry and what people want to hear. And I think it's good to be telling these stories that are, um, there is an audience for them in a way that there hasn't been before. And so why would I not, you know, be speaking to that audience? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I I would have liked that scene to go on a little bit longer. It gets kind of cut off <laughs> disappointingly. But I think it's a really interesting conversation within that film um, and kind of speaks to the sort of topic discussions that the film wants to open up. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. You know, if you might not choose to see it, if you do, I'd be interested to hear what you what you think. I'm definitely intrigued enough to watch it. I'm just not going to pay to see it in the theater. Sure. Yeah. All right. So the last film that I saw um is a the new Kelly Reichardt film called Showing Up which is it stars Michelle Williams and Hong Chao and it's about this woman who is um she's an artist she's a sculptor she's living within this sort of small artistic community in I think Portland um she works for a an art school and it's basically the few days leading up to a show that she has as she's kind of going around her her daily business and is desperately trying to finish all of her sculptures that can be shown at the show. But at the same time, she's dealing with all these mundane day-to-day <laughs> frustrations. You know, she has a family that's kind of dysfunctional. Her heating has not been working. And the her landlord is another artist who's also preparing for a show and does not want to deal with the heating problems. Um there's this um this like bird that her cat had like broken its wing and now she's suddenly stuck taking care of this bird which she really doesn't want to do um you know it's this very very low key film that is so much about you know the day-to-day unglamorous reality of what it's like to be an artist you know it's not all just sort of um you know flitting around and beautiful things pour out of you and everyone gives you applause and adulation. It's showing up every single day and doing your work and doing it to the best of your ability, even when it's hard, even when it's unglamorous. And the ways that you're not necessarily rewarded um, in the ways that some might think that you would be, but that there is still a, a reward at the end of it, you know, a sort of sense of emotional fulfillment and satisfaction. I thought it was a really gorgeous film it is very very slow very low-key really not a lot happens it reminds me a lot of patterson actually the the adam driver film patterson which great I movie love. great movie we should definitely do it on the podcast um yeah i would highly recommend showing up if you like a small intimate indie drama if you like kelly reichardt's films if you like michelle williams she's really spectacular so yeah that's what i've seen I actually remember now that movie was on my watch list. I think it came out in like 2021 or 2020. It is listed in, as 2022 on oh, okay. Letterboxd, but I I think it may have come out in festivals like late 2022 because I've, I've more seen it on 2023 best of lists. Oh, interesting. I'm not entirely sure. Because it was on my watch list like in... 2021 or something like it's pretty that was waiting for it to come out maybe i think i think that's probably it 
Okay. I'm almost positive that it's just come out within the last, at least for wider viewing within the mm-hmm. last year. It might have been in festivals back in 22. Gotcha. I could it's, be wrong about that. It was that, probably but... just based off the trailer because I yeah. saw it and I was like, Michelle Williams, small indie. <laughs> yes, please. I want to see it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm I'm glad you liked it. I need to put that back on my watches. Oh, and where did you see these movies, by the way? Oh, yes. Thank you. I need to be better about that. So uh, Iron Claw and... American Fiction, I saw in theaters. Maestro, I saw on Netflix. Dr. Zhuago, I saw on DVD. My roommate um, had the DVD. Society of... Or, no, sorry. Didn't speak about that. Uh, Asteroid City, I saw on Prime. And Showing Up, I saw on Canopy, which, if anyone out there is not aware, if you have a library card, check and see if your library has access to Canopy, because it's a great resource for streaming films. They have a lot of great older stuff, a lot of great indie stuff. Um, my previous library had Canopy, and my current one doesn't, and I'm still no. salty about it. I'm still <laughs> salty about it. Does your current one have Hoopla? Nope. Ah, dang it. Yep. Hoopla is uh, also great. City funding, you know. Hmm. Uh, where is where is my tax money going? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Not to the library, apparently. <laughs> Not, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, real quickly, just to touch on the stuff that I've been watching. Um, I saw my most highly anticipated movie of. 2023 even though I saw it in 2024 and also another one of my highest anticipated movies um all of us strangers and the zone of interest um both of them phenomenal films very very good some of the best of the year uh zone of interest I will never watch again most likely um it is a movie about, it is loosely based off of a um, a real person. I'm trying to remember. Oh, his name is Rudolf Haas. And he was the, I don't remember like the official technical terms, but he was like the main person who ran the concentration camp of Auschwitz-Birkenau. And he ran it, I think, for like four years and then left somewhere else and then came back. Um, so he is the man who basically was like yeah let's create these mechanisms to <laughs> like i don't i feel like kill isn't isn't even an adequate Slaughter? word absolutely massacre hundreds of thousands of people um you know he he really pushed this idea of these gas chambers and how they function in such a way that more people can die faster yeah. So normally it's like, I don't care about this guy. I would hate to watch a movie about him. I want to kill myself because it's so upsetting. But the reason that you're able to even engage with this at all is because the atrocities of what's going on, you never actually see. They are all going on in the background. And I saw this movie with um, a live Q&A afterwards with the director, Jonathan Glazer. And one of the main quotes that I remember is he said that his idea for this movie was to have it be two films, the film that you see and the film that you hear. And it definitely is both of those things because we're following Rudolf Haas and his wife and their family. And they live in this beautiful dream suburban home with a pool and statues and all of these things. And it is literally, it shares a wall with Auschwitz. It shares a wall. So literally if you walk across that wall, there's absolute horrifying atrocities happening on the other side. And so it's this 
I don't even know the words to use, but this film basically has no score at all. The entire score is just the sound design of hearing screams and gunshots and gas and fire and people shouting as they're being killed and screaming and all of these things. Whereas then you have this family and these kids who are laughing and playing in their yard and going to swim in in the river. And um, yeah, it, 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 it's a harrowing film that I think is incredibly important for everyone to see. Um, but it's very upsetting. And like I said, I'll never watch it again. Um, there's one particular moment towards the end that I probably will remember for the rest of my life. I won't talk about it because I want it to be a shock for people who watch it. Um, but it is really astounding. Um, this thing that happens at the end with the character or the person, Rudolf Haas standing in a hallway. That's all I will say. Um, but yes, I highly recommend you go see it. Um, it's very upsetting, but it's it's worth the watch. Um, I saw it in theaters. Uh, I saw it when it was just about to come out. I think it's a wider release right now. I do know it's playing in Boston, by the way, Geneva. Um, I really am excited to... I, excited is a bad word. I'm really anticipating seeing it because everything I've heard about it is fantastic. Yeah, Hopefully it comes to me soon. It's a great, great film. Um the other one I saw, which is, I think, my number two film of the year, I think. Might move up to number one, though, to be honest, is All of Us Strangers. Um, there are no words for me to express how much I love this movie. I quite literally sobbed for like a straight 45 minutes after this movie ended. Um, it is so emotionally impactful and profound and beautiful and it's just amazing it it is a film that explores pretty much every single aspect of love and the different ways that you can love people um love between child and parent between parent and child between husband and wife between um people who are recently and and in the in the process of falling in love um queer love it it's just it's about all different types of love and it it makes this argument or at least in my my interpretation of it is it makes this argument that love is something that is inevitably painful and going to hurt you but at the same time that's part of what makes it beautiful because without the hurt and the pain, you can't also you can't feel the profoundness of the beauty at the same time if you don't have the difficult sides of it. Um, and it makes this argument, again, in my interpretation, that love is the reason why we are alive. Um, it's a common desire and a common emotion that every single human on the planet experiences. It's arguably the one emotion that connects with every or, or desire that connects with everyone on Earth other than like primal things like food and things like that. Um, but yeah, so it's just, it makes this argument that this is the reason for existing. All of us have this same reason for existing. And it also makes this argument that you will never have enough time with the people that you love. And because either there's always more time to experience more beautiful love, or there's always more time to 
heal from the hurt that's been caused or whatever it might be, you will just never have enough time with the people that you love and the people that you care about. Um, so it's a very beautiful film. The last shot of this movie absolutely destroyed me. (laughs) Um, because the screen starts to go black and you think it's over and the credits are going to come. And then I just, something happens and I lost it. Um, so yeah, I guess, so the premise of the film is the main character, Andrew, played by Andrew Scott, he, his parents died, I think when he was 12 and he's in his forties now. And so he has this thing where he is just now beginning to process the death of his parents. And so he basically is hallucinating and he repeatedly goes back to his childhood home to interact with his parents and relive memories and try and build new memories with these people that are no longer alive while simultaneously opening himself up to the concept of experiencing romantic love for the first time. He starts, he he forms a relationship with another man in his building played by the incredible Paul Meskel. Um, and they just play off each other really well. So yeah, highly recommend all of us strangers um, and Zone of Interest. I saw both of those movies in theaters. Um, and then the last thing that I watched was I rewatched one of my favorite movies of all time, Francis Ha, starring Greta Gerwig and written and directed by Noah Baumbach. Um, incredible film. Uh, <laughs> um. Yeah, it's an incredible film about a young woman in, I think they say in the movie, she's 27. She's like, do I look old? He's like, yes, no, that depends. How old are you? (laughs) She's she's like, 27. Do I look older than I am? He's like, I don't know. (laughs) Um, But essentially, it just follows this woman in her late 20s who is experiencing kind of you know, these relationships that she's built from her early 20s, but now things are changing because certain people are growing apart and getting married or moving to different places and what it looks like to either lose or maintain friendships and create new friendships in this very transition, transitional, transitionary time of transition, I guess. Transitional. (laughs) Thank you. Um, (laughs) Transitional time while also trying to figure out what she wants to do with her life because she knows she wants to be a dancer, but she's not particularly very good at it, but she's holding on to this dream. But because she has this dream of her job and therefore her income coming from being a professional dancer, she has like no money. And so she basically by the end has to make this decision of like, am I going to continue chasing this basically unrealistic dream and live in destitution for a long time? Or is there another way that I can live out this passion that I have, but also still have enough money to live my life as, you know, an adult? Um, So yeah, it is a beautiful movie. It's one of my favorites of all time. I love it. And yeah, I watched that on Netflix, I think. Yeah, I think it's on Netflix. So that's Francis Ha. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's a very short film, hour and a half. Um, easy watch. Check it out. So yeah, that's what I've been watching. Three incredible films. It's been a fun time for me, you know, and then <laughs> Thelma and Louise, I'm like, just like banger after banger. I'm I'm flying high in terms of movies right now. Um, but yeah. So speaking of that, let, let's uh, transition into our discussion of Thelma and Louise, which 
Thelma and Louise. Yes, which I'm not even going to share my feelings about it because we will get to that. I will start with just my my immaculate research, <laughs> which I will say I had some really fun. I had a really fun time actually researching this because there, you know, I started on Wikipedia and then I followed some sources and there is an extremely, extremely long, very in-depth Vanity Fair article on this movie where it interviews the writer and then the director and some of the actors and it talks about the making of the film, the writing of the film, the production, the reception, like all of it. It was a very long article was and this... I read the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Was this when the film was coming out or was this like a retrospective several years afterwards? I, th- I think it's a retrospective. I think it's a retrospective. I don't know how how far after the movie it was written, um, but the way that they talk about it, you know, they're interviewing um, the writer Callie Corey, and she's talking about like I remember when da 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 da, and then really Scott is like I remember when da 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 da. So um, it is a retrospective. I just don't know how far uh, after the movie was released. Also, I I have some great quotes for this, which I'll read at the end that were also from really fun research um, because I went to Metacritic and I wasn't really satisfied with what I was seeing there because I didn't want to read reviews written by men um, because of the nature of this movie. And so I went to Rotten Tomatoes and Rotten Tomatoes really led me down some cool paths that I'm Ooh. excited to talk about. <laughs> um, but anyway, all that being said, let's get started. So. Today on the show, we will be discussing the 1991 incredibly badass women empowerment film, Thelma and Louise, starring the goddess Susan Sarandon and the incredible Gina Davis with a little bit by with Brad Pitt and written by the first time screenwriter Callie Corey, directed by Ridley Scott. Uh, so this movie premiering at the Cannes Film Festival in 1991, uh, Thelma and Louise was a hit right out of the gate. It made a Made with a budget of $16.5 million, the film went on to gross a total of $45.4 million by the end of its theatrical run. So it like basically tripled its money almost. So very successful film. Uh, I don't think that's adjusted for inflation, but nevertheless, it made a huge profit. So the storyline for Thelma and Louise came suddenly to Callie Corey in 1988 while just driving in her car. <laughs> um, and in an interview from the aforementioned Vanity Fair article, she said, quote, out of nowhere, I thought two women go on a crime spree. That one sentence, I felt the character arcs and saw the whole movie. I saw in a flash where those women started and where they ended up. Through a series of accidents, they would go from being invisible to being too big for their world to contain because they'd stopped cooperating with things that were absolutely preposterous and just became themselves. So writing the script over several years, the characters of Thelma and Louise were loosely based on Corey herself and her friend Pam Tillis, and they both met at a live music venue where they both worked, uh, Corey as a waitress and Tillis as a singer. And largely influencing the script were two incidents that Corey uh, experienced being the victim of two violent encounters. And Corey said in her interview, also with Vanity Fair, that she thought, if I'd had a gun, I'd have killed them, unquote. So she had been um, threatened several times by men on multiple occasions. And so that was kind of her experience that led to kind of further furthering with this story. And uh, so... Although Corey originally wanted to direct the film herself, she was unable to find uh, the adequate funding. 
However, once a friend of hers who who knew Ridley Scott made a connection between the two of them, the film finally started to come into being. Scott was initially hesitant to direct the film, though he emphatically wanted to produce the project. However, after several directors turned the opportunity down, he did eventually take on the job. And just some fun facts regarding casting. I found this to be really interesting. So before they landed on uh, Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis, they went through Holly Hunter and Francis McDormand, which would be super Cohen, interesting. Cohen gals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Jodie Foster and Michelle Pfeiffer. And then Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn. Death so, becomes her. Uh, super Reunion or pre-union. Yeah, I love that. I want to see all of those films. I know, right? And it was funny because there were some instances from my research that I saw where Meryl Streep was kind of a little bit stubborn about it of just being like, these are the things I want my character to do. And I think that Thelma should, or I don't remember if she was Thelma or Louise, but one of them should survive at the end. And both of, she just had very strong opinions Mm, and they were like, this isn't going to (laughs) work, which I just thought was interesting. But yeah, so that is my research for this film and just to talk about my relationship with this movie to get us started. I feel like this is just something I'm going <laughs> to keep saying with each movie that I choose, but this is yet another film that was on that list of movies that I created years ago. That was like, you have to see all of these movies to consider yourself a film person or whatever. So I saw this for the first time. I think it was in probably 2019. Um, and I loved this movie. I didn't really know what to expect. It was just something where I knew it was famous and I knew it was about two women and I knew the ending. That was pretty much all I knew. And then the more I watched it, I was like, dang, these women, like what? This is so cool. And just seeing this reflection of, you know, the the true, the true real life struggles that women have and seeing it kind of interacted seeing women interact with these realities in a way that is so I just think a lot of women at least for me I resonate a lot with their responses to all of these circumstances like if I didn't feel the threat of going to jail I would do all of these things um I don't know what that says about me but I don't like being treated poorly um (laughs) but um and so I think the movie makes this really interesting argument of do these women even deserve to go to prison or is it the society that should be going to prison because it's, it's okay for men to do this, but it's not okay for women to respond in this way. Um, And I just think that that is a really important question to be asking. So yeah, I loved this film the first time and I watched it this time. I loved it even more. I think this movie is, it, it, it's very upsetting in certain ways, but it's also so much fun and the performances are incredible. Um, I really don't have any complaints about this movie. Um, I, I did find it interesting, though, watching this. I was like, hmm, it, is Harvey Keitel a typecast? Because I feel like I've seen him be like a last minute responder to help solve cases or get people out of sticky situations. I many literally, <laughs> I literally told, so I watched this movie with my roommate. I literally told her afterwards, Harvey Keitel is basically playing the exact same role. He played in national treasure. <laughs> I know I was like national treasure, pulp fiction. Like he just, he just, is this just what he does? He's so good. So maybe yeah. think about that. And I think he also plays that role in, uh, is he in 
Is he in Clockers by Spike Lee? Hold on. Because I have if never he's seen in Clockers, Clockers, he definitely plays the same role. Yep, he plays the same role <laughs> in Clockers. That That's is hilarious. so interesting. We will oh, talk about I Clockers. I love Harvey Keitel. We will talk about Clockers on this podcast at some point. It's one of my favorite Spike Lee films. Um, but anyway, yeah, I watched this and I was like, interesting. I'm seeing a trend here. <laughs> um but anyway, yes, I love this film. I think it's incredible. This is definitely a rewatchable movie for me. Um, I just love badass women being badass women and taking down the system and being free and having fun. And this movie just does a such do, does such a good job. And also, I think the screenplay, like the script for this movie is phenomenal. The writing is so good, the dialogue, there's just so even just the process of me trying to come up with quotes for this movie, I had to boil it down from like eight. You know, it's just it's so witty and so well written and it's got humor and you know, it's got this incredible surprise moment with this guy who's riding a bike and he's smoking the biggest blunt I've ever seen in my entire life. And it's like, did this need to be in this movie? I didn't think so until right now, <laughs> you know? Um, but it's a great film. I'm really excited to talk about it. Uh, unless you hate it, then I'm really scared to talk about it. But please tell me your thoughts on this movie. Okay. No, I did not hate it. This was my first time watching this film. Um, it is an absolute classic. It's been on my list for a long time, and I had just never gotten around to it. I think in part because I knew, I knew enough about it just through cultural osmosis. I knew how it would end. I knew that there was a you know a violent scene of sexual assaults, which did not make me super anxious to watch it. Um, but I am so glad that I did. I, I really, really love this film. I think it's amazing. I can see why it was such a huge hit at the time. I really loved like, I mean, cause this film is basically just Bonnie and Clyde, but with two women instead of so therefore a man and a woman. Better. <laughs> <laughs> so therefore better. So many times I had this thought of watching this film of like, this movie's basically a Western. Like it, it ha has so many influences of things like um it's very like the ending is very butch cassidy and the sundance kid as well um you know so there are a lot of it's speaking to kind of larger sort of cultural uh, you know classic american tropes and um you know themes and situations that we love to see you know we love an outlaw <laughs> as americans we love to root for the underdog for the anti-hero and this film does it so well and it Do it does it in such a clever it does it in such a clever way by well in the same way that like butch cassidy and the sundance kid they are technically outlaws but we sympathize with them because they're in a system that does not you know it doesn't allow them to live free it doesn't allow them to um it, it's oppressive to them in certain ways. This is obviously taking those sort of like more fantastical, more mythological ideas and kind of directly translating into the real world in the sense of, oh, you know, the outlaw sort of mythologizes themselves as being kind of oppressed and against the system and speaking for the underdog. Here, we're going to take people who are actually oppressed by the system and create them, like mold them in this sort of outlaw form that Amer as Americans, we love to see and do it in such a fresh and funny way that is so like, you know, it has so much to say to the 
the feminist movement of the 90s and also today. Like it has so much to say to our, our society and the things that we're grappling with. Like it's such a clever interpretation of classic film archetypes and ideas and putting it in the, the modern day and giving us these two heroes who are people like a, a type of hero that we've never really, I shouldn't say we've never really seen before. I'm sure there are other films that are, have, there might've been other films before this that have done similar things, but it's just doing it in such a fresh and original way. And I think it's, it really holds up. I mean, just the conversations that they're having, the exact sort of, you know, well, I, it look it would look like I was leading him on. So people would not believe me and would say that I, I asked for it. You know, these are the exact kinds of, of things that we're grappling with today um, in an de- incredibly depressing way. But yeah, I, I love this movie. I think it is so well done. It's so clever. Like you say, the script is great. The acting is great. Um, I love the music, the Hans Zimmer score, so <laughs> especially crazy. toward the end. It's very sort of kind of 80s. Um, you know, obviously this was the 90s, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited that uh, we watched it and I'm excited to talk about it. Yeah, you just kind of talking about the things that you liked about this movie in terms of the acting, the writing, all of those things. It made me think, too, I love the costumes in this movie. I think they're so good how how in the beginning, you know, we see Gina, or sorry, we see Thelma kind of wearing this, this it, it's almost like a corset dress. Yeah, you know? it's she almost like, like she's a fairy tale princess who's been locked up in the tower for so long you know it's very girlish whereas louise is already dressed very sort of simple simply and almost masculinely um but even so they both have lipstick on and louise has this you know scarf this delicate scarf over her head and even their sunglasses that they start with versus the sunglasses they're wearing at the end Mm -hmm. i just think and it's not something where they're dressed this way and then the next day they wake up and they're dressed totally different we see we see um we see kind of a, a natural progression of what they're wearing until we get to the very end and they're kind of just in these completely just like tattered t-shirts just kind of like they don't give a fuck about anything (laughs) and Mm -hmm. um and they look hot wearing them you know they do they do and so yeah I just I feel like you know I loved this movie the first time but I think this second time around I really connected even more so with the costumes and also the script in particular um but yeah I wanted to ask a little bit about um what are your thoughts on the the cinematography in this movie, because I found it to be a very interesting choice for the beginning of the movie to kind of start with this landscape shot and it's black and white and then it switches into color and then it goes to black like the sun is setting in a really interesting way. Oh, and I almost forgot about that. I was wondering about, yeah, that choice as well. Yeah. And I, you know, I was reading some reviews for this movie and there were several people that were kind of commenting on how there's almost a third protagonist in this movie, which is the, like the landscape. And I was like, that's interesting because the landscape seems to be impacting a lot of other people more than it impact. I mean, it, it looks great. It's beautiful, but I didn't feel like it was a third character in the movie, but I also was like, maybe I'm missing something. So I don't know. Did you connect with like the, the cinematography in that sort of way? Or I don't yeah. know. 
I mean, I don't have an explanation necessarily for the black and white specifically, but in terms of the landscape as a whole, I mean, again, I think it just, for me as someone who has watched a fair amount of Westerns and really likes the Western genre, it kind of connected in that way of like, let's, we're sort of doing a modern socially conscious interpretation of the Western in which, which are films in which the landscape is very much part of the um, the action. It's very much a character within the narrative. You know, it's, it's contextualizing it within um, these sort of um, wide open landscapes, the, the harshness of the, the land, but also the beauty and um, the sort of sense of sort of, you know, law and order and right and wrong become more, I don't want to say more relative, but there is a, a way in which they're played around with and there are questions being raised about the ways that um, right and wrong operate or the way in which law and order is is applied. Um, yeah, like I feel like this is the sort of film and the sort of story that could only be set in within this landscape. And I think the film the cinematography does a great job of of capturing that. And I really love, too, I mean, there's a sort of cinematography and also just sort of the, the framing decisions by the, the director and the DOP. The way, the transition from the beginning as they're, they're, dri- uh, they're driving out, um, you know, the, early on there are so many scenes set in just the kinds of boring, like, roadside, gas stations and bars and things that you would see in any American road trip that you take where it's just billboards everywhere, overpasses, concrete wires, like it's all just so cluttered and um, suburban and just soul deadening (laughs) in a way. And as their journey continues, they're more and more going out into the wilds, into the the landscape, you know, all of a sudden they're out alone. It's just them in the open road, surrounded by these gorgeous, you know, towering mountains in New Mexico and Arizona. And, you know, it's this sort of as they're journeying further and further out into nowhere, they're becoming more and more free. And I think the cinematography just does a great job of that sort of transition from the the oppressiveness of the kind of civilization, the society that they live in, in in getting um transitioning to the the freedom of the open road yeah i really i really like that perspective i think that makes a lot of sense and i feel like you know it 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 almost represents where they're at mentally of kind of in the beginning they're still they're still within the within the borders of society and then as time goes on they're just forging their own path and it's like we're out here live in our lives doing our thing and we're not letting like we're just escaping from these boundaries that we've been kept inside of and we even see different steps of that in terms of you know in the beginning they're very crowded and then they go to this you know honky-tonk bar and Thelma obviously has this interaction with this man and she has high hopes for you know she's just flirting with this guy and she's kind of getting entertainment from it and she's you know, but then we see obviously that turns into a situation that is not funny at all. Um, and then as time goes on, you know, they move away from this crowded space, but they're going to another place where there are still people. And then they're trying to resist, you know, this JD Brad Pitt character, 
but Thelma still kind of feels attached a little bit to like that part of society of, you know, just feeling attracted to some aspect of this society. And then she interacts with it again. And then it's like, interesting girl, you need to just like get out, like stop, (laughs) stop engaging with this. Yeah. And then by the end, it's just the two of them. You know, I think they have an interaction with a police officer and he's almost trying to stop them thematically from them reaching their freedom. And then by the end, it's like, nope, we're just out here and we're going to enjoy this time that we have. And obviously it comes to an end in a way that's quite hilarious, in my opinion, of like, do we really need 36 cop, like, you know, cop cars chasing after these women who arguably, in my opinion, really haven't done anything wrong um, I mean, I can understand. I mean, free them. They did nothing wrong. But I also understand the perspective of like, they literally murdered a person and committed armed robbery and blew up a giant oil tanker. <laughs> like, I would argue they were justified in pretty much everything they did. But, you know, Does I can that... understand the, the show of force. Like, <laughs> You think 30, like 30 cop cars for these two ladies is nor? I'm like, that's excessive to me. Thir- that's just so I mean, many. I don't know what's standard. I don't know what's standard. I'm just saying that they were guns and explosions and murder involved. <laughs> I can understand why they're taking precautions. Yeah. Um, but I also kind of just... Okay, I'm not going to jump into Harvey Keitel's character yet. I Okay. Let's start by just breaking down the different characters that we see so we can do Thelma first and then Louise first and then kind of go from there Um, because I feel like the characters in this movie are very interesting and in a way this movie is entirely character driven you know like the story is about these women and how they evolve and the men and their relationship to these women and um, yeah I just feel like that's a really a really great choice for for a film like this so yeah I mean I guess I'll just start by saying my thoughts about Thelma and it's just gonna blend into Louise because I feel like they they just balance each other out so much it's like Thelma doesn't exist without Louise and Louise doesn't exist without Thelma but I found it to be I, I kind of forgot about the beginning of this movie and who these women are when they're living in you know the normal world and I forgot that Thelma was this kind of extremely chaotic, <laughs> impulsive woman who, you know, we have this montage in the beginning of them both. We see Louise kind of packing for this trip and she's got her clothes folded in Ziploc bags and they're organized. And, you know, and then we see Thelma coming out of her garage and her garage is like a complete disaster. She's got all of these bags and they're falling all over the place. And um, I just think the establishment of their characters from the very beginning just really helps with seeing where they end up and how much, how much they need each other. You know, there's this sense that Thelma would not have the, the, the growth that she has had Louise not been there to kind of pull her out of it and, and vice versa. And I really liked this idea of Thelma, you know, she does, I think by the end, she does become more aware of the realities of the world. But in the beginning, she almost seems kind of naive because she's been kept in this bubble. She married this man who was the first guy she was ever with. And it seems like he kind of hasn't really let her out of the home. Whereas Louise comes from this place of, you know, as time goes on, we learn that she's lived in the real world for a while because she was physically and sexually assaulted in Texas. 
And um, so because of that, she's a little bit colder, a little bit harder. Um, and she's the one who's like, I'm going to figure out what to do. I'm going to figure out, just give me a minute to think. Like, I need to figure out what we're going to do. And um, just seeing over time how Louise becomes a little bit looser and more carefree. And then Thelma, she, she almost becomes, I don't know if she becomes more reserved, but she just becomes more understanding of the reality of the world and how she fits into it. As opposed to just kind of like, oh, hey, I'm here living my life and there's no consequences. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just, I love, I love their characters and I'm sure more things will come up as, as we talk about the film, but I just, I love them and I love where they start and how they grow to where they end up. Yeah. Thelma's character is honestly probably the number one thing that I really connected to in this movie, you know, at least, you know, this, this first time that I saw it her transformation and not connected to in a sense of like I relate to her or anything like that but just in a sense of it's a very um, distinct and I think well thought through characterization and the the sort of journey that she goes through I think is really well done and Gina Davis manages to capture it really beautifully because my interpretation of Thelma is you know at a certain point she tells I think it's JD I can't remember but um she says that she married her husband, Daryl, when she was 18. They had already been together for four years at that point, meaning that she was 14 when they first got together. To me, I might be reading too much into this, but to me, Daryl reads as older than Thelma, which leads me to believe, even though this is not explicitly stated within the film, that it's very possible she as a 14-year-old had been groomed by some sort of older guy. And basically her entire teen years were spent with this incredibly toxic and overbearing man. She married him as soon as she turned was legal and has basically spent, I don't know exactly how old Thelma is supposed to be, but I'm guessing late 20s, early 30s. She spent the entirety of her teenage and teenage years and her 20s in this toxic relationship with this man who is extremely controlling. And so to me, my reading of her is that at the beginning of the film, mentally in certain ways, she is still 14 years old. You know, she is still a teenager who has never really experienced the world. But she has this incredibly vibrant personality that is, you know, it's exciting. She wants adventure. She loves being, she's a little bit chaotic, but she's also incredibly loving. And she's never really had a chance to express that. And so the, the film begins because she makes this choice to finally, in, some, in a small way, you know, in not a very confrontational way, but to stand up to her husband, which she has not done, it seems like, basically ever, by deciding to go on this trip with Louise. You know, she basically just leaves while her husband is out and leaves him a note. But it's still, you know, it's a, it's a daring choice for her to take, which you know, we can see by how, how nervous she is about how he will react. And so throughout the film, you know, especially in these early scenes, she makes some incredibly dumb decisions that get them into hot water. I mean, it's a good choice that it is. It's not her who fires the gun. It's Louise is the one who um, commits the murder that sends him out on the trip. But she makes some really unwise choices where you're like, girl, <laughs> why are you doing this? This is not a good idea. But you can also understand it because she is in some ways mentally still a child because of the way that she has been controlled and kept away from the world by her husband. And so throughout the film, we are watching her 
growing up. And so my her interactions with JD to me that's oh she's finally experiencing like her wild college years <laughs> like she sees a cute guy she wants to hang out with him she wants to you know do stuff with him and then she does and it turns out to be a pretty disastrous decision for both of them but he's like literally telling her <laughs> I am a robber he's like, yeah, I'm I like to- <laughs> this is my process this is yes. how I rob people I'm like girl what what are you doing what are you doing but I just think the transformation that she goes through over the course of the film where it starts out where Thelma and Louise are friends but so often Louise is in this position of caretaker for Thelma so often she's kind of the mother she's the no no no, don't do that we need to do this you know and as the film progresses and you know they start to reach the end of their rope. Louise is tired and frightened and stressed out. Thelma, as she's growing up, is finally learning to... She's gaining maturity and she's learning to take control in certain ways. And so by the end, there are so many moments where Thelma is the caretaker of Louise, where she's the one who's encouraging her to go forward. She's the one making decisions. You robbed a convenience store? Well, you said we (laughs) needed the money. I got it. got some money. I love how she uses the exact same technique that jd taught her in order to do it yeah i almost wrote down that whole quote where but i didn't do it but it's just like the hi everyone thank you can you guys please just get down on the ground please thank you (laughs) like it's like a whole thing now if you could please kindly open up the cash register thank you if you could put the money in this bag please thank you very much okay so polite so gently (laughs) you actually made me think of this quote while you were talking about the relationship between the two of them, this quote that I think Louise says it twice, specifically to Thelma of just, you get what you settle for, you know? And I find that to be very interesting because I think Louise is, in my opinion, she's very caring towards Thelma, but at the same time, she gives her a kick in the pants a few times to kind of be like, you need to, you need to wake up. Like I, I'm, I'm not, pushing you because I want to hurt you I'm pushing you because I care and I want you to just be aware of this world that you live in and and the fact that you do have ownership over your life and you do have ownership over the decisions that you make um you know we see that even from the very beginning where they're on the phone and Louise is telling her like hey you can't cancel on this trip like you gotta come you gotta whatever you need to get out of that house you know and I just really like like that that kind of role that they that they start with and I think that gosh I mean can we just talk about their performances like (laughs) Susan Sarandon has been one of my favorite actresses since I was like nine years old and saw Little Women for the first time I've always loved Susan Sarandon and then when she <laughs> when she played um Catherine Hepburn in Feud Bet and Joan or no, sorry, Betty Davis in Feud Bet and Joan, I was like, This is the role she was born to play. <laughs> like, you know, I love her so much and I feel like she does such a good job in this role of being this badass woman who also does have her breaking points and she also does have a difficult past that, you know, contributes to how she is now and she has this trauma that she's kind of running away from but also simultaneously working through in a way that's very realistic to me um I just think that her performance is fantastic and Gina Davis is great too I mean yeah I good casting I know there were multiple other 
options that like like we both said I would love to see those versions of this movie as well but the performances in this movie I'm like it just it works Mm. it works yeah like when we talk about chemistry between actors we're often you know most often talking about just straight romantic chemistry which you know you could have different (laughs) conversations about the type of of love that is exists between these two but it's just they have such good chemistry and you totally believe them as having been friends for years and you know they've had this similar dynamic of sometimes Thelma gets on Louise's nerves and sometimes Louise has to push pull Thelma back into back into reality but there is so much long-standing affection between the two of them and then as they go through these crazy circumstances their relation is their relationship is just deepening and they're discovering new things about themselves and the way their dynamic goes back and forth between you know they might be irritated at each other in one moment but there's still that enough love there to bring them back together and encourage have them push each other to keep going yeah it's beautiful it's just it's such a believable depiction of a, a, a long-standing female friendship. Yeah, and we'll get to this at the end, but both of these women were nominated for Best Actress in a Leading Role, which has only happened a handful of times when two people from the same movie are both nominated for the same award. Like, I, you know, and I think that both of these nominations are very well deserved. And, you know, if they'd chosen one over the other, I would have been like, <laughs> but the other person, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. So I'm, and I'm looking up who won. I'm actually really curious. Oh, I don't even want to know. <laughs> um, what was it? 19, oh, 1991. It, it was so, a really good winner. I wait, can say. I get wait? I want to guess 1991 films of 1990. Sorry, 1992 oh, f- films of 1991. Yeah films of 1991 and 1992 one of the actresses on who is a potential casting oh it wasn't sophie's choice was it i don't remember when sophie's choice came out was it no castaway wasn't 1991 what francis oh was it fargo francis mcdormand no, that's no. not 91. That's late 80s, I think. Oh, Jodie Foster, Silence yes, of the Lambs? Silence of the Lambs. Okay. It is a yeah, good yeah, winner. Yeah. It is a good winner, I guess. I had say. to look at all their names, and then I said the movies. I'm like, that's not 19 t- 1991. And then I'm like, oh, Silence of the Lambs was, yeah, yeah. Okay, I got there. Okay, congrats, Jodie. Yeah, agreed. Um, <laughs> but... I'm glad that both of these women got nominated. Yeah, I'm sure. glad they were both. Like, if if they had nominated one and not the other, that would have been ridiculous. Crazy. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about... Um, I'm trying to think if I want to talk about Harvey Keitel first. No, I'll talk about him after this. I just want to talk about the the general overall role, concept of men in this movie because I feel like this movie if if someone does not know what the term male gaze means watch this movie because every single every single man that they interact with or even see across the room is somehow objectifying them in some way, shape, or form. We have moments where, you know, obviously at the line dancing, Thelma is taken advantage of by this asshole person. 
And then we have Thelma's relationship with her husband, you know, Daryl, who treats her like garbage. And then we have this truck driver who we interact with many times. And by the end, they finally give him what's coming to him. And then we have JD who, you know, wiggles his way in and knows how to manipulate certain people in order to get what he wants. But then we even have little things where they're at a gas station and there's a man sitting in a chair next to them who's, I don't know, in his 70s or 80s and he can do nothing but stare. You know, I just... And then we have the cop also. The cop isn't... He doesn't really... He's not, like, condescending, I don't think. Um, But it is just another example of a power dynamic that exists. And so I just feel like there's kind of this, this big brother presence of just men throughout this entire movie the patriarchy that, yeah that Thelma and Louise are constantly having to engage with because everywhere they turn there is a man being gross <laughs> you know or just being disrespectful or whatever it might be or there's just a power dynamic that exists and so I don't know I mean is there anything in particular that you want to address there I just found it to be a very Because I feel like what I remembered from the first time was their relationship with JD, their relationship with Daryl, and their relationship with Harvey Keitel, and and the truck driver. But I I forgot about all these other little nuances and and little very brief moments that just happen here and there. Yeah. So. Well, actually, before we get into this larger conversation, if you don't mind, there is one dynamic within the, the film that I'm kind of struggling to like fully click into place which is Louise's relationship with Jimmy so can you talk Ah. a little bit about your thoughts on Jimmy as a character and how he functions within this larger story yes yes I I was actually thinking about this quite a bit after finishing the movie because I was like hmm I have complex feelings I need to think through this and my thoughts on Jimmy are that he is He is a man who is growing out of the patriarchy that he was raised in and the role that he was told to have with women and the relationship that he was told to have with women. Because, you know, I I do get this sense that he genuinely does care for Louise, but he also, you know, he has that moment where he knocks over that table and, and is very, you know, aggressive. Um, but Louise is someone who is, she's strong enough to put him in his place. And I think that when he recognizes that he's like, oh, like she kind of helps him wake up to recognizing like, oh, that's right. You are someone that is worthy of like respect in those things. And so I don't know. I feel like there is a genuine connection. I feel like I, you know, but there's also complexity too of, he comes there and he has a ring because he's kind of like, I just don't want you to leave. And I'm like, well, how much are you actually proposing because you want to marry her versus you just don't want her to leave and you think that this will get her to stay? Like, I don't know. Um, so I have mixed feelings about him, but I do feel like by the end, when they have that final discussion at the cafe and he does leave, it does seem like he genuinely does care for her. And it also seems like she genuinely does care for him. And... I remember in the research that I did also from this Vanity Fair article, if you love this movie, please look it up. It's a fascinating article. It's very long and has so many different, you know, tidbits about this movie. But 
I think I read that Susan Sarandon was like, no, the character of Louise would not have sex with this guy who just shows up at her, you know, motel room or whatever when, when she's going through this, especially what she's been through and she just saw what happened to Thelma and she's refacing her trauma. Susan Sarandon really pushed that like, this is not a situation where he comes in and she falls for him and, and is like, oh, this, thanks for bringing the money. Like, let's be romantic now. Um, and I think that that's a very good choice that really works for her character and therefore makes it makes their dynamic more believable. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it's very complex. Um, he, he seems like someone who grew up as a sleazebag, but is learning to be less of a sleazebag, which compared to all the other men in this movie <laughs> is a win. <laughs> so Right. <laughs> okay. That, that makes sense because he, it is so, you know, as a first time watcher, I kept going back and forth between, you know, this movie seems like it's positioning me to hate Jimmy, but actually he did say something kind of sweet there, but oh, now he's knocking over the table. Not great. Like I kept going back and forth. I could not decide how I ultimately came down on him. He also, I mean, he, Prom- he promises Louise that he won't say anything to po- the police. Later, it seems like he did, but we don't get a sense of... Oh, really? To me, it seems like he didn't. Uh, I thought that the police mentioned something that Jimmy had told them, but I, I could... Again, I've only seen this film once. I could have mm-hmm. missed it or misunderstood it. But we, even if he did, like we don't get a sense of... Oh, I think you he know, told them about... I think he told them about J.D., Oh, okay. Maybe that's it. It's like, yeah, they yeah. Were with this he was somehow kid. involved in them being able to nab JD. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because we don't get a sense of like, did he tell them something that was actually harmful to right. Salmon Louise or just something else? What did he tell them under some sort of threat or pressure? Like, yeah. It's like he tells them about JD. They bring JD okay. in and then JD gives them the information to find out. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. That, that's right. That's right. Okay. But also, I don't think JD gave them anything helpful because the, the one way where they finally figured out where they were was. Louise was actually on the phone long enough for them to be able to locate them. JD apparently tells them that they are going to Mexico. Right. Which is then Louise gets mad at Thelma for telling him. Although, to be honest, Louise, like I understand her being pissed off, but I'm also like, I don't think it's a really hard leap for them to be like going to Mexico. Yeah. (laughs) Seeing as they're wanted fugitives and they're in the southeastern United States. And they're like like, leaving a trail as they go. (laughs) I think they would have gotten there in the end. (laughs) Yeah. Um yeah, yeah. I I love you bringing that up though. That that was a really good question Mm. that I was also thinking about. So yeah. yeah, Well and it makes the the film more complex because there is a spectrum for the men. Like it is, as you say, the so much of the focus of the film is them existing within this patriarchal system where they are constantly being viewed, commented on, hit on, you know, big power exacted on them in some way by men. But the men themselves, there is a spectrum, you know, there's the worst of the worst, you know, the dirtiest scumbags. And then there are guys who are scumbags, but kind of in a less, you know, kind of like JD, where it's like, yeah, he's a sleaze ball, but well, not but I shouldn't say, but you know, like um, he's not a rapist sleaze ball. He's just a, you know, he's just a. I'm gonna steal your money. I'm just gonna steal your money. You. you know, <laughs> I'm gonna give you a great night, and then at the end of the day, the night, I'm gonna realize you got money, and I'm gonna make off with it. 
Um, but then we do have Jimmy, who, like you said, seems like he is someone who grew up within these really toxic masculine systems, but is kind of working on it. And we have someone like uh, Hal Slocum, who who does seem to genuinely um, be sympathetic toward them, even if he is ultimately powerless to do anything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, it makes the movie more complex than it might have been otherwise yeah so i guess oh yeah go ahead this is just a small note but when you talked about the you know this movie is great for understanding the male gaze Mm -hmm. i do have to say too and credit to ridley scott you know a man directing this film Mm -hmm. my understanding is that this film was also really influential in the sort of female gaze in the sense of Brad Pitt was a huge impact on male body, <laughs> ideal male body types and the idealization of the six pack because there are some extremely loving, you know, sexualizing shots of his <laughs> glistening body, <laughs> which is very, I mean, it's very female gazy, to be honest. And there, 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 I don't think there are certainly shots of Thelma and Louise in certain states of undress, but there's, I wouldn't say that there's anything quite on that level of them. It's more Brad Pitt being the one objectified, I think. I think it would be very distasteful if they were depicting the women in that way, especially given what the opening part of this movie is. You know, it's like, I feel like that moment with Thelma in the parking lot is, it's really kind of the catalyst for this story that I don't know it would just be so disrespectful if we saw oh, certainly yeah like I for that to be sexualized or made glamorous I mean I, I can't imagine anyone wanting to do that because that'd be so disastrous for the film but yeah you know yeah. certainly it's not so thankfully yeah so I guess piggybacking off of that a little bit we might have already talked about this as much as we can at this point but do you have any other further thoughts in terms of just like the constant presence of men looming over this or is it I feel like we might have touched on it enough yeah I was kind of curious about that interaction with the um the older guy at the gas station Mm -hmm. Louise gives him her jewelry it looks like I I couldn't tell why she was doing that if she was attempting to pawn it so they could get a little more money or if there was it was more like she's finally taping taking off the last trappings of her femininity and just kind of giving it to the first person she sees. That's kind of how I read it, but I wasn't sure if I was reading that correctly. I agree with your latter thought, but I would just add on top of that, add on top of that that her thought was also well, you want it anyway, so just take it. Like you clearly want it, I don't want it. Here you go, you know. Um, And I also want to point out there's a very brief moment. I think it's at that same gas station where they're filling up with gas. And there's a guy standing behind them lifting weights in the most absolutely. Did you see? I mean, he's got dumbbells that are like, I don't even know how heavy those dumbbells are. 75. I don't even know. And he's like absolutely ripped just going up. And I'm like, this is so not necessary but I feel like the fact that it's in here just is further emphasis of like the yeah men are just (laughs) I completely forgot not not all men suck but there are particular aspects of men that exist that are just blah 
And so men who would be standing in a gas station doing that, there are <laughs> men that would do that. And it's just like, well, oh. you know, I mean, <laughs> maybe he doesn't have a gym to work out. <laughs> maybe he works like at the gas random... station. He's like, I can kill two birds with one stone. Go to a random field somewhere. You live in the middle of nowhere. Like you don't need an audience. Um, but yeah. Okay. So that being said, I think as far as the the men, I want to talk about Harvey Keitel's character. I want to talk about um, Daryl and I want to talk about the truck driver. Um, so let's talk about Daryl a little bit, I guess. Um, I, I feel like my favorite Daryl moment in this whole movie is, um, oh, what is it? It's like, so I think it's the first time that Thelma calls him on the phone and his phones are tapped or whatever. Or maybe maybe her, his phones aren't tapped yet. It's like the yeah, well the in, where the police are listening in. No, I actually think it's before the police are listening in. Oh, it's okay. the first time she calls him, and he's like, "If you don't come home tonight, oh yes. then okay. you know, or else." And she's like, "She's like, or else what?" And he's like, "Well, Thelma." <laughs> like I'm not even gonna finish that because he's like talking in all these threats, and he's like, "If you don't come home, da, 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 and she's like, "What?" <laughs> and then he has nothing to say. He just sits there stunned in silence for a, not a brief moment and then just says Thelma because he doesn't know what else to say. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just thought that I, I really liked how he contributed to Thelma's character, but I also felt like he wasn't, he didn't feel cartoonish to me. Like he felt like a real man. Whereas the truck driver. Mm-hmm. The ca- truck driver is the one character who I think they maybe could have he he fits he's a little bit out of the vibe of the rest of the film for me like he is a little bit cartoonish in a way that most of the other characters even the most despicable ones are not i think he's cartoonish but i think he's cartoonish in a way that works for me um but yeah so before we get to him though do you have any thoughts on on daryl or anything that you want to say about him (laughs) well what i thought you were gonna say is the moment which really made me laugh where the first time thelma calls him when the police are listening in and they're like you know you got to keep her talking like you know make sure let her know that you want her to come home and she so thelma's calling trying to find out what he knows and she just goes he just (laughs) goes like hi Thelma like really how nicely are you? how are you and she just immediately hangs up and is like he knows <laughs> yep yep it was so good his like delivery he's being too of nice. that line his delivery of that line was so good um it's just really funny yeah so oh my gosh I wrote down this one line too I don't remember maybe you can remind me when this happened but I remember I think Louise says it and it's so funny I started laughing who does she say it about she just goes, oh, my God, he's a Nazi. Oh, it's the when Who's the cop about? stops them and is going oh. <laughs> something oh God, about his uniform. Na- she's like, oh, my God, he's a Nazi. He's a Nazi. <laughs> I don't know why she says that. It's really funny. <laughs> so good. Um, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, do you. I guess let's let's talk about the truck driver just to kind of get the, the shitty men out of the way. And then we sure, can talk sure. about Hal, which is Harvey Keitel's character. Um. But yeah, I I think the reason why the cartoonish character of the truck driver works for me is because that scene is just so great. It's so I, heightened. Because it's, so, it's like, yeah. I feel like there's so many movies and so many stories where the women exist just to give men more character development for them, you know? Whereas this is something where it's like, no, this man literally just exists to make these women look 
cooler. And I love that kind of, you know, flip, what is it? Flip of the switch or whatever it is. Um, you know, like the turn of the tables. Yeah. He's so ridiculous, but because he's so ridiculous, it allows this incredible moment for Thelma and Louise to be the most outrageously cool that they are in this entire movie. And it's so well written. And I love that scene so much. Yeah. Yeah. It's so hilarious to me how... And again, this is like partly the cartoonishness of the character, but also just like the point that the the larger point that it, which is a true point that they're making about the patriarchy. After, you know, multiple encounters with these two women and them obviously being disgusted by how disgusting he's being, they finally decide, let's trick him into thinking that we're actually going to have sex with him. And he completely falls for it. He's like, oh boy. All right, here we go. Yep. What are you doing? Yep. Oh man, it's so as if like you do. But that's the thing. I feel like there Mm -hmm. are some men who think, oh, if I just move my tongue like this Mm -hmm. and shout at women, like they're gonna find me irresistible, and here we go. And it's like your ego is so inflated. Like women don't want men who behave this way, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. you think that you're hot, and it's like it's so. Yeah. Well, I'm always like fascinated in a, you know in a disgusted way about the the psychology of think of catcalling and because I think in some cases it is that psychology I would suspect in there are other cases where it's more like I'm gonna say these things because I'm actually disgusted by women and I you know I hate them and I think they're all cruel and gross and malicious and that's why I'm going to catcall but I think there are also men who share this similarity to the truck driver of being like you know Obviously, I am so irresistible to women, and so therefore, let me just get their attention, and then they'll fall yeah. at my feet, clearly. Or he just thinks it's funny, and he's bored, and he just wants women to interact with him in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, like, well, that's also also very possible. All yeah. of them dumb reasons. <laughs> but like, <laughs> Guys, am- if, if there's any, any, any men listening to this who are on the fence... Please don't catcall. Women do not, not be like being. We, we don't appreciate pretty it. Pretty much across the board. I've never <laughs> no, met you. a woman that likes being catcalled. And believe me, women talk about this. We don't like it. Um. <laughs> anyway. Um. Yeah. I just. I. I love that scene so much. And they're, I feel like yeah, they're so badass. The way the way that you said like, and they're so in sync by this point mm, too, which mm-hmm. is really cool. Like there are earlier scenes where. You know, they'd be trying to do something and they're not entirely on the same page. But in this scene, it's just... They're like finishishing each other's sentences. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's -hmm. like they pre-planned all of this and it's so smooth. It's so, it's so freaking cool. Yep. Um, Yeah. And this constant back and forth of like, do you think he's going to apologize? Nope. I don't think so. And (laughs) are you going to apologize? He's like, nope. Well, guess he's not going to do it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And kind of bringing in like, you know you know, how would you feel if someone spoke to your mother like this or your wife or your sister? You know, that's sort of like making those great, like this is kind of their moment to kind of express all of their, the, you know, the feminist frustrations of living within this, these toxic societies that feel like they own women. You know, this guy is not going to be receptive to any of them, but it's their chance to express all of these things that we've been thinking for 90 minutes. Well, I would say that it expresses a lot of things that I've been thinking for decades. Like there's this one, there's this one um, moment when 
because I wrote down the whole quote, but Thelma basically says to him, she goes, I mean, really, that business with your tongue? What is that? That's disgusting. And then Louise goes, and that other shit about pointing to your lap? I mean, what is that supposed to mean exactly, huh? Does that mean pull over? I want to show you what a big, fat slob I am. And it's like... (laughs) Oh no! And then and then Thelma goes, or does it mean suck my dick? And it's like it's this whole thing of, do you not realize, like what what are your actual intentions behind saying this and doing this? Because if you actually think about it, it's dumb. And if it's not dumb and you actually mean it, it's disgusting. Like either way, it's a poor reflection of you and your character, and your relationship with women overall. And I just love how the two of them are both in it together at that point and they're challenging this man to his face and I'm like yes like th- this is my inner voice all the time <laughs> like like what what do you hope to accomplish by saying this like it's just don't say it it's dumb yeah yeah like we are two human beings and you may see us as objects, but consider that there are other women in your life that you may actually see as human beings consider the fact that there's no difference between them and us like that's such a basic humanizing you know you know idea of humanizing another person that is somehow completely missed on him yeah and his response is this very cliche phrase that I hate this phrase I hate it when people say this to or about women but his only response is you guys are crazy and it's like women are not Women are not crazy. like, And if we are crazy, it's because society makes us that way. But like these women are not crazy. They're calling you out on your craziness. But because you don't know how to receive it. Anyway, I love that scene. If the if the cartoonish truck driver was not in this movie, it would be a casualty. Like, I'm so (laughs) glad that he's here because it allows for this amazing scene to exist. Um. But yeah, okay. So moving on from him, I'm really glad we got to talk about that moment though. What what do we think about um about Hal in this movie? Harvey Keitel's character. Um I I don't really know what to say about him generally apart from I mean it is it is refreshing to have one character who at least in my interpretation is very genuine in his being sympathetic toward the women. I like how quickly he puts together like basically everything that happened, you know. I mean, they're they they've never been on the run before. They don't really know what they're doing, how to cover their tracks. He's he's onto them pretty quickly. But he does um he is very willing to listen to them and to do what he can to give them a fair deal. He's consistently, you know, when things have escalated and they're on the run and there are cop cars and helicopters and guns coming after them. He's like, don't shoot them. Don't shoot them. Like, they don't deserve that. Um, but, you know, he is ultimately powerless. Um, I I mean, in part, I think, just because of... Because every interaction, basically every interaction they've had with a male up to this... A man up to this point has been a, a negative one. When he tries to explain that he actually is willing to work with them, they just don't believe him. And I think, I mean, to some extent, that's their downfall. But there's also, I think, to a certain extent, I don't know how much he actually would have been able to help them. Um, He might have, if he had been able to get in there early enough, maybe there could have been a way this would not end in tragedy. But I kind of think this is a story that's headed for tragedy either way. 
So, yeah, I don't know. But I do really like the character. I love Harvey Keitel as an actor, I gotta say. The second he showed up, I was like, I like this guy. <laughs> and then when he turned out to be, like, one of the more decent guys, I was like, okay, great. I can yeah, he this. shows up, and then Michael Madsen shows up, and it's like, oh my gosh, Reservoir Dogs reunion. Um, and I don't think you've seen Reservoir Dogs, no, but um, it's a great reunion. Uh, Michael Madsen is Jimmy? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And in Reservoir Dogs, he's the dude who cuts the guy's ear off. Um, oh, lovely. And, and he has that famous dance to that famous song in that famous scene. Anyway, Reservoir Dogs is great. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I saw the two of them. and I was like, I forgot there was a Reservoir Dogs reunion in this movie. Um, but yeah, I really like the character of Hal because I feel like, you know, similar to what you were saying about maybe, you know, he tried to help, but they didn't want to receive it. And if we don't know how much he would have been able to do, I think he kind of voices in the movie that he was like, I could have helped you, but now that you guys have robbed a convenience store, there's really nothing I can do because he kind of tells them specifically Louise. He's like, I know what happened to you in Texas. I know what happened I believe that this guy that you shot was, you know, a trashy guy. I believe you. I want to do what I can to help you. And he tries to do that. But then, you know, obviously they hang up the phone. And once they rob the convenience store, he's like, I, you guys are, you're not, legally, you're not victims anymore. You guys are criminals. And because of that, I can't, I can't make an argument for you as to, you know, in a way that's going to actually make a difference. And I find I find his genuine understanding and empathy to be a really nice aspect of this movie because I feel like, you know, I get very nervous when I watch movies that kind of point out the patriarchy, you know, something like Barbie or whatever, because I'm afraid that it's going to make men not interact with the story because they feel so attacked that they just get defensive and they don't watch it. And... I feel like this movie and also Barbie as well. I feel like it communicates the message in a very clear way without making the claim that all men are irredeemable. And I think that Hal is that character in this movie that communicates like, Hey, it's not all men. It's a lot of them, but it's not all. And there are men who are allies to women that do exist and do believe them. And um, like you said in the beginning, this message is something that's very relevant still today. But I think as time has gone on, society is getting better at believing women. Um, but I think particularly at this time, having this character was really important because I wonder, this is completely hypothetical, but I wonder how successful this movie would have been had he not been in it, you know? Um but yeah, I really like his character. He feels very real. And I like how at the end, like you said, he really does make this argument that don't, like, don't shoot. They haven't done anything wrong. You know, maybe there's a way that we can do something here. Um, it's almost like he becomes the naive one, you know, and Thelma and Louise are like, this is the way that it is. We would rather die as free women than live in this system you know, that doesn't care for us and doesn't hear us and doesn't see us. Um, so, yeah, I, I like his character a lot, even yeah. though I made the connection. Oh, Harvey Keitel kind of always does this, <laughs> but he's so good at it. He's so I good know. at it. Well, again, National Treasure, he shows up at the very end and is yep. like, 
I've been one step behind you this entire time. I know exactly what you are up to. And also, I believe you and I want to help you. So. Yep. <laughs> exactly. I really love, um, I mean, what you said before about like, you know, his him pointing out that when they commit armed robbery of the grocery store is the point where they kind of cross the line. I love the scene that he has with JD right afterwards. It's a pretty short scene, but where he interviews JD and is basically like explicitly pointing out, you are the reason that I cannot help them anymore in the way that I wanted to. It is because you stole from them that they then had to go and commit this robbery. And just making that so explicit to JD, who is this character who's like, I don't, the way he's portrayed, I don't think he's sort of malicious but he is extremely selfish and narcissistic and is just basically out for his own pleasure and doesn't see you know any he the the concept of inconveniencing or or causing problems for other people does not seem to trouble him at all and so for him to have that moment of like oh i guess i do kind of have these women's like ultimately blood on my hands in this way is I think a really important moment Mm -hmm. wonder what happens to that money (laughs) yeah well I assume the police dollars yeah yeah it was Jimmy's originally right the women didn't steal it it's technically their money yeah I mean it's Jimmy's money yeah I I would assume it goes back to Jimmy at the end I don't well maybe he's being charged as accessory who knows I I hope not I mean, I think he could claim plausible deniability. I don't think he actually yeah, knew what happened that's true. or what they were that's doing. That's true, because Louise explicitly never tells him. Yeah. She's like, I don't, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm not a lawyer. Um, <laughs> just speaking of JD, well, the adjacent to JD, can I just say the moment where, you know, Louise has been like, no, 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 no we're not going to pick up this strange guy in the car. Like, we can't, we have to keep going. But then they meet up with JD again. And Gina Davis kind of turns to Louise and does this little whimper. Please. She's like, please. <laughs> and then Louise is like, okay. And she's like, <laughs> yeah. like a dog. And it is the cutest thing. It oh made me gosh. laugh so much. <laughs> yeah, so funny. Um, also, speaking of funny things, I wanted to make sure that I mentioned there was one shot in this movie where, where they were at a gas station and it said a dollar nineteen for gas and I was like, I oh. saw that too. I pointed $1. that out to my roommate. I was like, Can you imagine? <laughs> I would have so much more money if gas were yeah. Um Now let's talk about inflation. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> Wages probably the exact same th- as they are oh. now in twenty twenty four. Yeah. Anyway, that's a um, conversation. Yeah. And so I guess just one one other moment. I forgot to write down the whole quote, but um, kind of jumping around, and this feels like it's kind of from nowhere, but there's one moment or one quote that I really like where I don't remember at what point it comes in the movie, but Thelma and Louise are in the car, and Thelma basically goes on this short little monologue about how, or no, I think the two of them talk about it, but Thelma basically says, I feel awake, and Louise is like, me too. And Thelma just basically says, yeah, I feel more awake than I ever have in my entire life. And I just thought that was a really sweet moment between the two of them when Louise really passionately just expresses, I feel awake. And I think that's great. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad she had the opportunity to feel that way before she died. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well, um, you don't know. I don't know. (laughs) We don't see them crash. (laughs) I hope they die because if they survive that crash, they're going to have a rough life. Oh, man. Um, Maybe the car sprouts wings and carries them on to a better life. Yeah, it's it's a chitty chitty bang bang (laughs) car. Um, (laughs) Well, again, it's the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid ending of, you know, 
they're going out in a blaze of glory, but we're capturing their final moments. It like you know, it's right before their final moments that we're we're leaving with them, and so yeah, yeah, they live so on forever in our in our hearts. And <laughs> and, yes. Um, so there's two more scenes I want to talk about before we, I guess, get to the the ending part of the movie. But one of them, it's not a scene, but it's just something that really frustrated me. And this honestly felt like the most unrealistic part of the movie for me being a woman and knowing women, the fact that Thelma goes out to the, to the parking lot and all of these things, I was like, I feel like the waitress should have told these women about this guy because clearly when he comes over to the table and he's flirting or whatever she's like hey are you bothering these ladies and da 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 and then after the fact when Harvey Keitel shows up and he's kind of asking her about the scene of the crime she's like I mean I didn't see what happened but knowing what I know about him I guarantee you that these women like they wouldn't have shot him without reason and so I get the feeling I'm like girl she could have allied maybe a little bit harder. I know, and that's what I'm saying. I feel like in the real world, a woman would have said something. But the fact that she didn't, I'm like, I, mm, does that make you the worst person in this movie? Because of like, <laughs> uh, it does not make her the worst person in this movie. But It, it just made it, me very frustrated. It, yeah, it, 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 is a, it is frustrating that, that she didn't say anything or warn them more explicitly. Or Yeah, I mean, uh, clearly it's an extremely crowded bar she probably had a lot of things that she was trying to do all at once but she she could have looked out for them more definitely. I don't know I feel like if I were in a situation I was a waitress like when they went to the dance floor I would have gone up to Louise and been like hey by the way just so you know like yeah that guy to comes be, in here a lot and this is what he does and like I'm just giving yeah. you fair warning you know yeah I guess to to be the most sympathetic toward her would be I'm she knows that he is a creep and hits on women and that he has a lot of mist, like he's sleeping around on his wife. She may not know that he's actually a violent rapist. Yeah, I mean but, that's a very generous reading, but yeah, she, I, I, I agree. She could at the end of the day, it doesn't more. bother me too much because I don't think that's how it would play out in the real world. Real world, a woman I would hope have not. said something. I like, hope not. Knowing what I know about women, a woman would say something in reality. Um, but yeah, okay. So I have, uh. Two funny things I just want to acknowledge and then one final scene before we get to the end. So the the two things I want to acknowledge are, uh, Geneva, you and I have talked about this before many times, but this this movie does it very well and it makes me so mad, but this movie makes smoking look so cool. (laughs) (laughs) It is hard to make smoking Uh. look uncool and I say that, do not, if if you don't smoke, don't start, like it's not good for you. I encourage you all who smoke to stop. But, but it looks it's so it it's just so inherently cool. cool. Like I must acknowledge. <laughs> I know. It's like in this movie I was like, dang. Yeah. Did and you it- see, by the way, I'm sorry, this is unrelated, but it just made me think of it. There's a on SNL recently there was a weekend update piece about a cigarette who's talking about how cool smoking is. Oh. As opposed to vaping. I, I did see it, it really but I forget what it was about. But anyway. yes. Anyway. I can picture the costume right now. It was yeah. a, it was a really great costume. It was a great costume. Um, <laughs> anyway, and and I also like how that prop is used to show the character development of Thelma as well. Because mm. by the end, I think she takes some from Louise and she smokes a little bit. So it just shows how like she's catching up to Louise's edge by the mm. end. You know, yeah, she's finally cool enough to participate. <laughs> right. Which, <laughs> dang, 
Movies you like know this, what? I'm like, if I, I was pick up smoking, if I was probably going to go out in a blaze of glory, yeah, I'd start smoking too. Like, why not? <laughs> Honestly, yeah, that'd be great. Um, okay, Again, so I'm just going to I'm going to use this as a transition into like the last scene that I want to talk about before we get to the end. Mm-hmm. Speaking of smoking, the largest blunt I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. <laughs> is the one that this I was wondering if it was a blunt or whether it was a cigar because it's no it's it's cigar thickness but it looks like a blunt it's a blunt um it's I've I'm like is that what they looked like in the 90s or is it supposed to be just like a huge reflection of this character that is so it is so funny because he's like he's this very like lean guy who's on a bike he's got all the equipment like he's seems to know what you know he's very athletic and then he's just smoking this gigantic blunt as he's like I love it pedaling so, along so so yeah I guess what do what do we think about about that scene I personally love the addition of that scene I think it's great um and I suppose we didn't really talk about the police scene with Thelma and Louise either so maybe we can just talk about it overall yeah. but um do you think just to start off when that cop is pulling them over and then he puts Louise in the truck, we don't, or in the car, we don't go go far enough to know exactly where it's going. But do you think that he does that because he is just pulling them over for speeding or does, is it because he recognizes their car and is saying that he has the fugitives? Because that was kind of my assumption, I, but I so, don't know if I'm right. So I'm not a cop, so I don't know the procedure. Um, but my, my, my assumption was that he was just pulling them over for speeding but I also was thinking, if you just pull someone over for speeding, I don't think that justifies you putting them in the car. Yeah, I've know? never seen that for a routine so traffic I just stop. Didn't, I just didn't really know. But also, I don't think it's realistic that Thelma would get up and walk towards the car and he wouldn't notice Without her until she noticing. got to the window. Yeah. So um, I think that scene just is what it is to get to where it needs to go. Yeah. Um, Which, minor point, I have to say this because it really bothered my my roommate. Why did Thelma and Louise never change their car? Why did they never like they are driving this extremely distinctive looking convertible the entire movie. They never once attempt to change it out, you know, stop at a used car lot, change it out for another car, steal another car, anything like that. It's because they're not criminals, Ginny. <laughs> they they respond to situations in ways that they absolutely have to, and I don't think for them switching cars was essential like they're not they're not criminal masterminds they're just people who are reacting to where they're at like oh we don't have money I guess we should run you know that even surprises Louise Louise is like you did what you know it's not like they have a plan it's just yeah they're just women who are running away you know um I don't see them as criminals I really don't and I'm not saying that you do but I feel like stealing a car involves like okay we have to get the keys or how are we gonna hotwire this car or what well even just just, I'm thinking of like in Psycho after um Janet Lee's character steals the money she immediately stops off at a used car dealership to to swap out her car thinking that the police might be tracking the one that she was driving I mean granted well they also are in the middle of nowhere they are in the middle of nowhere yeah that's a good point that's a good point I'm not necessarily saying it doesn't make sense it just (laughs) yeah it was a question yeah valid question sorry back to the cop scene no very valid question um yeah I mean I don't really have too much to say about it I just thought it was really great to have another moment where it's just like 
Okay, can you get into the trunk, please? Thank you. Sorry, we don't really want to do this. We're so sorry. We know, you know, and then I think it's Louise who who shoots the trunk and she's like, air holes, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, I wonder how long he was in there because he probably like melted to death. I oh, don't yeah, know. Yeah, I was but... going to say, if he's not found soon, they definitely like, killed him. Yeah, like, he would die if it's he not would die. Like 30 yeah. minutes. If... They could have just handcuffed him to the steering wheel or something like yeah. that. Um, but, but I do really like that scene. I, I do think it's, it's quite funny. Um, so yeah, but anyway, yeah. and I just, I'm sorry. I just love the biker. He's so, he's, <laughs> he's so great. So chill. Cause it's like, he's just like walking around super slowly. He sees the cop car and is like, well, before I go over there, you know, I'm just going to like drink some water. And then mm-hmm. when he walks over, he's like, like listening to music. We don't even know how long it takes him to actually hear the bang and when he walks over it's like is he gonna open it it's like nope he's just gonna blow smoke through the, <laughs> through the bullet hole um I just I love that scene so much I think it's great um but yeah okay so my last thought before the end is I just wonder did Jeez Louise start with this movie because in the beginning in the beginning Thelma does say to her she's like Jeez Louise I was like, I don't know if that's from this movie. I feel like it probably is, but mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, Apparently it started in the 50s. Oh, okay. I just cool. Googled it. But it is really fun. I wonder if they named that character Louise just so they could say that. That'd be great. Um, okay. So what do we have any thoughts or anything that we want to talk about regarding the regarding the ending? You know, the cops show up. They've got so many cops. So many cops. So many. They have like machine gu- too much just too much I'm sorry it's too much um and you know obviously the the very famous iconic ending where Thelma and Louise decide to instead of getting captured they drive their car off into the Grand Canyon I love that moment when they pull up and they're like oh I think it's the Grand Canyon (laughs) you know um but it's almost this very romantic death of like they're at the Grand Canyon by surprise Obviously, you know, they have this final kiss between the two of them before they drive off. Um, so, yeah, I do you have any just like thoughts on this overall scene? I don't know. I mean, I did know. I think I said at the beginning I did or maybe I didn't. I don't remember. I did know how this film would end. I knew yeah. that the last shot would be them driving off the cliff in slow motion to, in slow motion to escape the cops. Um, and I'm glad I did because, you know. I don't, I probably, you get so invested in them and them, their journey and knowing me and like suspense and things like that. I probably, it, I think it helped me to know, but like there, you do get the sense that this is the only way that their story could have ended, you know, like even, even in their moments of hope, there is this overall sense of the system. The whole system is against them. They are ultimately doomed by what they're going to do. But they are going to make a statement and the fact that they're able to achieve these things and to, you know, to grow in their relationship with each other and to to have these experiences that they weren't able to have before, before all of that happens is the point, you know, that is the thing that is, is significant, that is the thing that is so exciting. And yeah, I mean, again, I've compared it to Butch Cassidy so many times already, but like, there is that larger mythological um, aspect to the way that it's framed and shot and 
you know, it, it's the, I think the reason why this movie was so ultimately successful is it's such a fun ride. It ends on such a high note where even though it is sad in the sense of these two people we, we really like are about to die, there is that sense of they're kind of captured midair, <laughs> mid-moment. You know, they don't really have to die in your moment, in, in your mind if you don't want them to. They can kind of they kind of live on in infamy forever, you know. Yeah, I I second all of that. I I very much so agree with you. Um, and it, it kind of reminds me of you know you comparing it to Butch Cassidy. I'm going to compare it to the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, how, <laughs> how you know we see this progression of Sam and Frodo, and how you know throughout the whole journey, Sam kind of has this hope of you know we're saving this. We're not going to have enough left. And, and Frodo's like, what do you mean? We're not going to have enough food left. And he goes, well, for the journey home, like, you know, and, and Frodo's like, oh, okay. You know, he's starting to lose hope, but Sam still has hope that, you know, at the end of this, we will make it home. But by the end, Frodo kind of says in this defeated sort of way, but like this last grasp at maybe he's like, you know, there won't be enough water for the return journey. And Sam goes, I don't think there's going to be a return journey, you know? And just this, I mean, it, yeah, you know, obviously they do make it home and all that stuff, but, but it just reminds me of this idea of you start in some way and you're holding on to this hope that maybe we'll make it and maybe we'll actually get the ending that we want. But you do get to a point where you recognize like, you know what, there will be no return journey. So how do we go out, you know? And um, it's like, well, we're going to go out destroying the ring and saving everyone else, or we're going to go out, you know, by just together by our own choice, you know, not by force, but by our own choice. Um, and I think there's something really beautiful about that. Yeah. Um, I do love a moment of, cause now, now that you've said that I'm thinking about sunshine, which is a favorite film of mine. I don't, I know you don't, you know, feel the same way about it, but there are explicit moments in that where it's like, there is a shift of thinking, you know, we need to think about how to conserve our resources so that we can make it back after we've completed our mission to, we are not going back. So we're focusing all our resources on completing the mission. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So last thing I want to talk about, I don't, I don't really know what, I don't think the film is necessarily trying to say anything specific about this. Maybe it is, but it feels like you're open to interpret it however you want. And that's fine. The movie doesn't really care, but the kiss at the end I wonder how you read it. Like, does it feel kind of ambiguous ambiguous to you or does it feel 100% like this is a platonic thing? Does it feel 100% like this is a romantic thing? How how did you how did you read that? I think ambiguous is the best way for me to read it in the sense of this is a kiss that is 100% born out of love between these two women. But I don't think there is a really a way to quantify what exactly that love is. Because I don't think Thelma and Louise know in that moment what it means. You know, they're, you know, as as far as we can tell throughout the rest of the film, straight women or, I mean, you know, at, at least as far as their experiences have gone. But there is this extremely powerful love that they've they've always had with each other and that has built up you know, throughout the course of the film, through their experiences. And so, yeah, I just, I don't think there's really a way to def put a, a label or a categorization on what that love means, how it, um, 
like if they had lived somehow miraculously, which obviously they would never would, um, what it would mean afterwards. But I think just just to simply say, you know, it's an expression of the love between the two of them is the most accurate um, thing to say about it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I do think that it is, it's pretty ambiguous and you can kind of attach whatever meaning you want to it because I don't think ultimately it matters. I think as long as it communicates that there is this deep love between these two women, whether it's platonic or otherwise, it's a really beautiful moment. And if you want to see it as something romantic, then that doesn't change. In my opinion, that doesn't change your takeaway from the film. Or if it's a friendship thing, in my opinion, I don't think it changes your takeaway from the film. I'm just glad that it happened. I thought it was this really beautiful culmination of this journey that they've had um, and where it's ending, you know? It's it's just like no matter what happens, we have each other and we've made this decision together, you know, because Louise has given Thelma the out many times. She's like, you don't have to continue on with me like you could stay. I'll go to Mexico by myself or or you could get out of the car. And the moment where Thelma first like explicitly says, I'm going to Mexico with you. And the look on Louise's face is just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I think the ultimate decision to drive into the canyon is actually Thelma's decision. Um, Thelma is the one who's like, forget it. Like, yeah, it's her idea going back Mm -hmm. and Louise is totally on board. And I just think, yeah, I don't know. I just, just as, just as you were saying that I don't think this movie could have ended any other way in terms of them, you know, driving off into the Canyon. I agree with that, but I also feel like I feel the same way about the kiss. Like if that had not happened, I feel like this movie would be lacking something regardless of how you interpret it yeah I think it needs to be there yeah it's funny I I think because I'd seen some sort of parody of Thelma and Louise at some point where the people who are doing the parody exchanged the lines I love you Thelma I love you Louise I was expecting that to happen which it didn't um which threw me off a little bit but I mean it's the kiss it's basically the same thing it's just Mm -hmm. saying it physically rather than through words showing not telling Right. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that that being said, is there anything anything else from this movie that you want to bring up or, or touch on or anything like that? Um, I don't think so. I mean, there's so many little moments, so many great lines, like you said, in this film um, that we've not gone into. But I think we've hit on pretty much all the the major points. So, yeah, nothing else that jumps to mind. Okay. Yeah, I can just say if you haven't seen this movie, please watch it. It's very it's very good. It's a good, good. one. Yeah. Um, it's very fun. Yeah, I had to get the DVD from the library. It's not really streaming anywhere unless you rent it. It is on Tubi. That's where I watched what? it. What? How mm-hmm. did I not see that in my research? On <gasps> Tubi and Roku Dang. as well. I had to drive across Chicago to get this from oh, the no. <laughs> I mean, it Dang. could be it was at, I don't know when you last checked, but it could be that it was added fairly recently. Okay. I, let's just say that it'll make me feel sure. better. Um, <laughs> but okay. So to close out this movie, like I mentioned, I think in the beginning, this movie was received very, very well. Um, it wasn't just a box office hit. It was a critical hit. So this movie was actually nominated for six Oscars of which it won one of them. And the Oscar that it did win was best original screenplay. Very good. And win. absolutely a good win. Um, And the nominations that it had were, like we said, it was Best Actress in a Leading Role, both for Susan Sarandon and Gina Davis. 
and uh, also best director, best cinematography, and best film editing. So I'm glad it got some awards recognition because for a film like this, you never know because it is very countercultural in ways that it shouldn't be, um, especially in the 90s. So I'm glad it got the recognition that it deserved. Um, in this film in 2016, the United States Library of Congress selected it for preservation in the National Film Registry, and they called it culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. So, huzzah. Um, <laughs> huzzah. <laughs> oh my gosh, I have to mention something that I've been watching that I forgot to bring up. Anyway, oh, I yeah. will say that real quick before we close. But Is uh, it the great? <laughs> no. Okay. Um, no. So this movie has an 89 on Metacritic and an 86 on Rotten Tomatoes. It's probably all men that gave it not. Uh, yeah, the remaining, what, 14%. Yeah. Um, okay. So like I said in the beginning, I had so much fun doing research for this movie. So I have two reviews that I really like. And the second one, I have a great story behind it. So. Geneva, don't read them in advance. Okay. <laughs> um, so the first one is written by Marjorie Baumgarten from the Austin Chronicle. And both of these reviews were written in the year that this movie came out. So this first one is Thelma and Louise is going to be compared to a lot of things before its run is through. A female road movie, a women's buddy adventure film, a female Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. <laughs> but it's I mean, it's not an original thought. Yeah. <laughs> But it's a whole lot more original and exciting than any of these tags convey. More than anything I've seen in a long time, Thelma and Louise makes me think of the old New World pictures with their populist blend of politics, humor, and off-the-cuff pacing. And the fact that Sarandon and Davis are nothing short of perfect in their characterizations also contributes to your wanting to take this movie home and put it under your pillow at night. This is a movie to love. And it phases me not a bit that I think it could stand a few minutes trimmed from its running time, that Kaitel's sympathetic Arkansas detective is somewhat lacking in motivation, and that virtually all the other men in the movie are idiots and jerks. This is a movie to love that touches you in places you never suspected, that shows you that the road less traveled is the road to your dreams. I really like that review. Yeah, that's nice. I don't um, know that I would agree that... I don't agree about Kaitel's, I... but... Yeah, about Kaitel's, yeah. or I'm trying to think if they, it could stand a few minutes trimmed. I mean, it moves very well. I don't know that I would cut anything out. But. Yeah, I, I agree. It's also not a long movie to begin with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's over two hours. Um, oh, is it? Mm -hmm. For some reason, I thought it was just under, but okay, no, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so this last quote, I am so excited about because, <laughs> don't read it yet, Geneva, don't read okay. it. Okay. Um, <laughs> So this comes from a, um, a magazine called Outweek that was, it existed for less than a decade from the 80s into the 90s. It was a LGBTQ magazine that existed just during that time. And, you know, it, it talked a lot about, you know, the AIDS crisis and all of those things um, and was just a big representation for queer people at that time when it was a little bit more, you know, problematic. So... This one I found because I was on Rotten Tomatoes and I thought this one was cool and I clicked on it and it took me to an entire archive for this entire magazine and it was like a photo scan of this old magazine page in black and white and I had to like zoom in and read it and it was so much fun. So for me as someone who is a lesbian, I want to read this quote. It's incredible. I love it so much. <laughs> so here we go. 
It is so. This uh, review was written by Monica Dorenkamp from Outweek, like I said, and she says, "Quote: It's difficult to decide which of these girls you like better, with their red red hair matching the red desert landscape that surrounds them through most of the film. Strandon and Davis are the sexiest couple to come out of Hollywood in years." Even though director Ridley Scott wouldn't let Sarandon have a tattoo for her part, we love her all the more for wanting one, her Louise exudes the kind of faux butch sexuality that educates and liberates Davis's vrai femme Thelma. Is the film anti-men as some critics have wanted to see it? No way. But it's very pro-women. And if there could only have been another two or three days on the road, it could have been explicitly (laughs) pro-dyke. I love it so much. (laughs) Um, I think it's great. Anyway, so that those are the reviews I pulled. Uh, but like I said, go look up the Vanity Fair article on this film. It's very, very good. Um, I'm also going to look up more stuff from Outweek because I'm intrigued. Um, what more can be said? I love this film. I love movies that center women and just women are just amazing and I love them. And this movie just really highlights how great they can be and how strong they can be in the midst of a lot of difficult times in the midst of just society that does not naturally lend itself to them having much power or agency over themselves. Um, And so it's also just nice to see a bunch of sleazy people get what they deserve. And I think that happens a lot in this movie at the hands of women. Um, I, don't think that these women should go to prison. Uh, I think in a perfect world, it's the men who should go to prison or if not prison therapy or something, uh, correctional treatment, something like that. Um, and I think it says a lot about our society that this movie, it, it positions them as people who in the world that we live in would go to prison. But Harvey Keitel's character asked this question of like, well, yes, they will go to prison, but should they, you know, like, should they really? And my answer is no. I don't think they should go to prison. But anyway, um, I just love the themes of this movie. I love the feeling that you have when it's when it ends. Um, it's yeah, I just I love this film. Like I said in the beginning, it's it's definitely like a rewatchable film for me that I will return to relatively frequently. And I'm really glad you finally watched it. So how about you, Geneva? What are your final thoughts or takeaways from this movie? Yeah, I'm really glad that I I finally watched it too. It is, I mean, I can't really add too much to what you you said because you summed it up very well. But it is it is so much fun, but in a way that also pushes you to consider the role of women in our society, the um, problematic aspects of power dynamics, and um, like kind of depressingly how little has changed. But, you know, some things have changed, which is which is good. Um, Men are yeah. better at listening. They are. They Not are. saying they're good at listening. They're better. <laughs> better, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I, I really enjoyed this movie. It is, you know, for a movie that does end with the, you know, explosive death of our, <laughs> of our two lovable protagonists. Our two lovable protagonists. It's a very uplifting and enjoyable movie and the relationship between of them between the two of them is truly very, very beautiful. And um yeah, I would highly recommend it to anyone who's not yet seen it. Yeah. And apparently it is now on Tubi, so 
Yeah, it's on Tubi. <laughs> you don't have to Watch drive it. across your city to rent it from a somewhat local library. <laughs> That's true. Only a few annoying ad breaks. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, that's going to close us out. Geneva, can you share what we will be talking about next week? Yes. So next week, we are going to be talking about um, one of my favorites, like uh, a movie I've returned to many times over the years. I, I'm excited to rewatch it. I can't say exactly what I keep getting drawn to about it, but I, I just find it a really fascinating movie. <laughs> Uh, anyway, it's called Young Adult uh, from 2011, starring Char- Charlize Theron, uh, sort of satirical and dark Patton comedy. And Patton Oswalt as well, right? Patton Oswalt, Patrick Wilson, um, the lady from Twilight, Elizabeth Reeser. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Elizabeth Reeser. <laughs> the lady from Twilight. Yes. So many Twilight <laughs> actors are just that guy or that lady from Twilight. <laughs> Sorry to them. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so that's what we'll be covering next week. All right. Well, I'm excited for that movie. And uh, yeah, it'll be a good time. So thanks for sticking around and listening to us talk about Thumb and Louise. Yeah. Go watch it if you haven't already. Please go watch it. Um, And we will talk to you guys next week. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com. Our theme song was composed by Joel Rushton, and our podcast graphic was designed by Kara Shin. If you like this show and want to hear more, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're excited to have you on this journey with us. Until next time. Mm-hmm.